If you remember the kind of the outline we were following in chapter 3 as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, and it's a perfect, perfect uh, entry to the Lord's Supper. We're looking at what the text reveals. <clears throat> we're looking at um, the illustration of what it reveals, and now we're looking at the application, and that's where we are now. We were at the revelation, the Apostle Paul picking up on the fact that the only way to worship God the pattern of worship to worship God is in spirit, rejoicing in Christ Jesus, and having no confidence in our flesh. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that third one and says, okay, the, Ju the Judaizers among you, those who would come in among you and say, you got in by grace through faith, but you're kept by some other means, i.e., in particular, in their case, obedience to the law. He, he, he goes about to tear apart that argument, and he can speak with authority about this because he was once one of them. He was once a Judaizer. He was persecuting the church. And so he goes in to illustrate the truth that he just revealed before. This is how you worship Jesus. And this is his design to strip us of any confidence we have left in our flesh. I don't care who we are this morning or how long we've been walking with Jesus. Some of you might have been walking with Jesus for many years. Some of you for months and everything in between. Whoever we are here this morning, we have too much confidence in our flesh. We have too much confidence in our flesh. And really, you could kind of summarize the Christian life until we get to heaven and we graduate to heaven that the Christian life is kind of like a series of God-ordained events to strip us of every bit of the confidence that we still have in our flesh. He's sovereign of everything that happens in your life. He's in control of everything that happens in our lives. And He orchestrates every bit of that so He can ruin us of our confidence in ourselves so that we can invest full confidence in Him. So the Apostle Paul takes his own testimony, and he can speak with authority about this, and say, let me tell you something. I was once one, I, I was once deceived just like they are. And, and do you remember how, how he characterized it? He did it like an accounting transaction. You remember us talking about that? That the first part of it in the illustration is everything that's in the debit column. Remember? I mean, he literally does characterize it this way in the way this is written. And the second part is the credit column. Okay, so the first part, he goes to the debit column, and we'll not go through that again, but he goes to the, everything now he detests and no longer sees as anything but a waste. He is excelling in Judaism, persecuting the church, zealous for a righteousness, a self-obtained righteousness of his own good works, and we've talked about it time and time again, but I'll never know of a time until Jesus comes that it doesn't bear repeating. You are not saved by works, obedience to the law, or religious ceremony. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period, end of subject. It is not what man has done. It's putting faith in what God has done, and He did it through His Son. Hallelujah. And the greatest heresy that's ever been advanced, the greatest heresy that floats around and will until our Savior comes, is it some way that there is some way that a man, woman, boy, or girl can by themselves make themselves acceptable to God. That is a lie. God mercifully comes to us. And so the Apostle Paul said, that track I was on, when God met me at the Damascus Road and saved me in Jesus Christ, and I encountered Jesus Christ, I count all of that but rubbish. That stuff is waste. It is to be discarded. It is dung, literally, is what he's saying. And then he comes to the credit column and he says, oh, here it is. 
Here it is. Here's the credit column. It's not what I've achieved for Jesus. It's not what I will achieve for Jesus. It's what I've believed. And it's I've believed in Jesus. We make salvation some credit or creed or some uh, some philosophy. And oh, are there tenets of our faith that we believe? Yes, and stand on absolutely. But it's not just the plan of salvation. It's the person of salvation. That we have an intimate, living, breathing relationship with a living God. That we would be reconciled to God through the gift of His Son. He brought us back together on the cross of Calvary. Was raised from the dead three days later. And now we enjoy a relationship not religion. Fooey on religion. We talked about the fact that religion is man's unsuccessful attempt to reach God and Jesus is God's successful attempt to reach man for the elect, those who have been saved. And so he said, that I may gain Christ. And he talks about the credit column. And he said, fooey on that, that, that system of belief, that heresy of belief that says that self-righteousness is the way to heaven. My own righteousness, he picks up on here in verse 9. He said, but no, 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 no. I am interested in the righteousness which is from God, and that righteousness is from God and is received and lived out by faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And this is the part that we kind of cower away from. When he says, in the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Here he speaks of, like we talked about, the fact that there's the work of the cross in, uh, for us, but there's also the work of the cross in us. And this is what he's speaking of here. Suffering is God's divine design in the life of a Christian to, re to absolutely tear apart our confidence in ourselves so that it can be replaced with gut level, flat footed, pure confidence in him. We don't like God's method. That's the problem. We cower away from it. Remember we talked about the fact, cursed is the man in Jeremiah, it says, who trusts in the flesh. He'll not be able to see good when it comes. He'll misinterpret the suffering and resent God for it rather than looking at it as a divine design from God to make him more like his son. So we should receive it. But here's where we get the title of this message. The title of this message, this is a little unusual here, but the title of this message is the rearview mirror, email, in the deep blue sea. The rearview mirror, email, in the deep blue sea. But look what he says. Now here's the application. We just went through the illustration. The Apostle Paul uses his own life to illustrate these truths. I've got to hurry. But now here comes the application. And here's the application. And this will trip you up, and it has tripped us up time and again. But here comes the application. Watch. He said, not that I've already attained. Now he's picking up from the fact. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead. There is a resurrection, a resurrection for the saint. There's a bodily resurrection. Hallelujah. And we're going to live and rule and reign with Jesus forever. But in the meantime, he said, I haven't already attained. I'm not there yet. I'm not already perfected. Parenthetically, just for a minute, the very moment, the very moment that you and I repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, we were positionally made holy. Right then. Right then. We were made in the, in the, in the, in the view of God, which is the only one that matters. He has declared us now, you who were once unrighteous, you are righteous positionally but until we're until we until we go to heaven and we're with him together 
There is a practical holiness, a practical sanctification that God is working out in our lives right now. In other words, the Christian life is in essence God's design in order to manifest His Son to a lost and dark world for His glory to close the gap progressively between our positional holiness and our practical holiness. That gap right there. He wants that gap to start closing. In other words, He wants our conduct, our behavior, and our trust to come in line to with who we are. Now you can't grow in practical holiness until you realize who you are positionally. Positional holiness and understanding of positional holiness is the key and the, the bed, the seed bed, from which practical holiness is realized. And so that gap, God's, God's trying to close, or He is closing, so that perfected right there, the Bible says He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So in one verse, you've got both of them. He's already perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Okay, so He's sanctified. He's setting us apart. Guess what? This is not a popular theme in church culture nowadays. It is God's will for you to be holy. It is! And holiness takes a bad rap. Holiness is like people, we think of people who are holy who put on black clothes and walk around solemnly, straighter than I'm walking, you know, and, and are mad at everything and are sad, you know, and I define my life for what I don't do. I don't do the following. Holiness could be nothing further from the truth. The Bible says, worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. That's what makes Him beautiful. He's holy. That word simply means complete. It's the complete life. It's man as God intended you to be. Emptied of you and full of His Son. And buddy, there's nothing more beautiful than that. We don't define our lives by what we don't do. Are there some things we don't do? Absolutely. But we are to define ourselves by what we get to do. You know what God says? Go out and love all you want to. Go out and have explosive joy. Go out and have peace. Do it! Because there's no law against it. Amen? That's the complete life. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm not perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold. But how do you lay hold? He's fixing to tell us. How do you lay hold of? He, Jesus has already laid hold of Him. Again, we emphasize this. The Bible makes it clear. In salvation, God seeks you. In sanctification, you seek Him. And God say, come on, come on, come, on, come at me. Come on. I want you to have all of me. But come at me. Value me enough to come at me. Come on. Take my word. Latch hold of it. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Don't be led by your emotions. Driven by your fear. Latch on to a promise from God. Make it your own. And dare me to fulfill it. God loves that kind of engagement. He wants it with His children. Come in here. Let's get it on here together. Let's find out what a relationship means. I love you. And I want to pour everything I've got and everything I am into you. you imagine God being like that? Isn't that awesome? Without faith it's impossible to please God. He who comes to Him must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who half-heartedly seek Him. What is it? Diligently. Crazy. 
was courting Jill, I'd do stupid things. I really would. I remember one time I sent her a bouquet of flowers because I thought I was going to be apart from her. I wound up cutting my trip short. Came the next day, and I remember my father-in-law walking in and saying, well, somebody just threw away a lot of money. And I felt like such an idiot. I thought, man, I was nice to him because I thought, hey, we get into the family, we better have a good relationship. He's a great guy. Okay, here we go. I, it's laid a hold of it. Watch this. Brethren, I do not count myself, verse 13, to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those who are behind, things who are behind and reaching forward to those things who are ahead. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that the modus operandi for the enemy in Apostle Paul's life, one of them, was to constantly remind him of what he used to do? Don't you know that? Don't you know he was harassed by that? Oh, you love Jesus. Yeah, he used to kill his followers, buddy. There's a lot of people in eternity right now because of your hand, your zealousness and all this. And now you come over here and start this, love, and here you are writing the New Testament. Of course, he didn't know that, I don't think, back then. See the rearview mirror. Let's go into the rearview mirror here for a minute. I'm going to talk about the way the rearview mirror in your car is. And I'm going to talk about the way that you often, and I often act like it is. The difference between reality about my rearview mirror and the difference between how I act with my rearview mirror. All of our cars have rearview mirrors. I had a car one time that the rearview mirror fell out, but right now they're intact. Hallelujah. And... Notice something about the rearview mirror. Here you are, you've got the window at the front, the, the front of the car, and you've got the rearview mirror sitting there. Do you notice something about the size of them? The rearview mirror is significantly smaller than the forward mirror. And it's just for glancing in every now and then. It's just for a perspective every now and then. It's just to kind of look over there and take a, take a look. But have you ever tried to go down the highway and just look in your rearview mirror? Do any of y'all do that? Let me, let, me ask, let me say this to you. I'll make a comment to you. If any of you do that, we're going to end the service early and give you a head start out of here. Because I don't want to run the risk of running into you. Because I will run into you. Literally. You don't look at the rearview mirror. You just glance up every now and then. It's just a little perspective. You don't dwell on it. You don't go to your rearview mirror and just get out in the garage and say, I think I'm going to go admire the beauty of the rearview mirror that's in this car. We're the prettiest rearview mirror in this car. Have you ever decided to buy a car based on how good the rearview mirror looked? Have you? Because I can tell you one thing, what that thing's got on it. It's got a kicking rearview mirror. You just wouldn't believe the rearview mirror in this car. You wouldn't make a decision to do that. But let me tell you this. Here's what we do in the Christian life. In orthodoxy, we say that thing's small. But in orthopraxy, we switch it. And we wait the rearview mirror, the front mirror, and that's all we look at. And the enemy is harassing you by past mistakes, past failures, and whatever you used to be. And he's constantly chiding you. He's constantly after you and I. He's constantly accusing us. He's constantly harassing us. And we're constantly looking at the rearview mirror. And we need to quit it. The Apostle Paul could have never grown in grace and could have never become the preacher of grace that he became if he didn't keep if he didn't quit looking at the rearview mirror. 
It doesn't mean that some of us are not living with the consequences of things we've done. The consequences are there. Let me tell you this. When you become a Christian, when you become a person of greater surrender as a Christian, you know what God does? He doesn't change your past, but He changes the meaning of it. Once before, the meaning of it was, here is the debt. This is all the stuff He needs to just absolutely eat your lunch. You are beyond salvation. You are beyond hope. You're beyond this. I've been in that kind of despair before. I've been in the kind of despair before. I so said, God, just, would you just kill me? And I'll just go straight to hell and let's get it over with. And, and, you, and He wants to get you just in the doldrums of despair from looking in the rearview mirror. Constantly focusing in on. I don't mean that those things didn't happen. He doesn't erase them. He doesn't take them away in the sense that they did happen. But He changes the meaning of them. Once, they were ammunition for the enemy to shoot you with and condemn you. Now, now, they're an incentive to praise God for what the cross overcame in your life. That's how He changes the meaning. Is God great or what? Now, He can flat do that. And you know what? Don't you be their Christian to condemn somebody else by looking in their rearview mirror and throw it in their face. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The Bible says the principalities and powers that were arrayed against us were absolutely shamed and disarmed at the cross of Calvary. Colossians chapter 2. Here's what the devil does. He brandishes this big gun. It's a shiny bullet. This is the way I see it. Camilla, it's like a bull, it's like a gun, and it's it's a silver, it's a silver, it's a pistol with a pearl handle on it. And it's real shiny and it's real out there and it's real noticeable. But guess what? It doesn't have a single bullet in it for a saint. It's just all pomp and circumstance, but there's no substance to it. If God set you free, he set you free. You need to enjoy your liberty and praise him for it. Does that make us cold and callous and indifferent toward the sin and downsize it? No! No, I tell you what it does, it magnifies God's grace. It says, oh Lord, if you can overcome that in me through the cross of your Son, what else is there? There's no bridge you can't cross. There's no heart that you can't reconcile. Our God is mighty to save. Email. Email. That's about as far as I go with the computer's email. You ever notice this? You get an email and you get billions of them, you know, trying to sell you everything and that and whatnot. You click on there to delete it. And then it goes in the trash folder. You can't just straight delete it. Not in mine. Now, maybe you all know how to do that. But in mine, it goes from that regular folder and then it goes into the trash folder. And pretty soon they accumulate in the trash folder. So I have to go over in the trash folder and empty them out of the trash folder. And I'm thinking, are they really gone now? Or can Spencer come in here and look around and find some file somewhere and bring them back to life? But as far as I know, since I'm not Spencer and I don't have his computer brain and all of that, I have no way of retrieving it once I get that, I hit that delete button. And that's what the enemy wants to do. And you know what the message is? I started to write it down. I think I got it memorized. When you hit the delete button, you know what it does? 
a little block comes up and says, are you sure that you want to delete the contents of this file? Yes! <laughs> yes! That was the plan! Get it out of there! And see, that's what the flesh does and the world and the devil. He, you know, once you delete it, he still messes with you and you go over to the file and it says, are you sure you want to get rid of this? And you know what many of us do? Many of us do the same thing that happened after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and slaves were freed. You know what happened to many of them? They went back to slavery because they couldn't handle freedom. You imagine that? You can, you're free to go. I'm coming back here because it's familiar. It's safe. I know where everything is. Life's predictable here. I've got an ordered life. Might not be the best one, but it's ordered and it's predictable. And that's the kind of that's the kind of slavery we as Christians live in when we've got Jesus standing at the cell, opening it wide open with a nail scarred hand, saying, Get out of there! I took your place. Get out of there. And the deep blue sea. In the rearview mirror. Email and the deep blue sea. Look, at, turn to Micah. Have you ever heard of Corey Ten Boone? Most of y'all probably have. Corey Ten Boone was a spirit-filled woman. She walked with God. I'm here to tell you. At least everything she's written, I've tried to get my hands on because it's always encouragement. And she loved Jesus a bunch. And she said that once you confess and repent of a sin, that God throws it into the sea and puts a sign beside it that says what? No fishing. You've heard it before? Man. That came from Corey Tim Boone. Well, that's scriptural. <laughs> Don't you love it when somebody comes up with an example, Marlon, that's scriptural? <laughs> you know, because the rest of it's just opinion. It doesn't matter. Look at this one. Look at Micah chapter 7. We'll look at verse 16. This is God talking about Himself. It's high time that we of the church, uh, let's make a decision here. Can you all just make a decision? Rather than us talking for God, let's let God talk for Himself. Let's take us a better choice. All right, God's talking for Himself. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. I know Christians that have no delight in mercy. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I don't have the spiritual gift of mercy. You ever heard them say that? You know what they're saying? I don't want to even be remotely like Jesus. That's what they're saying. You better be glad and I better be glad that God's a merciful God. Amen. Look at this. He will again have compassion on us and He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins. Where? Into the depths of the sea. What's the, what, is the, what is it? Mariana's Trench? Those of you who know geography and all that kind of stuff. Isn't that what it's called? Isn't it? Tell me how deep it is. Isn't that the deepest part of the ocean? Okay. Justaskjoe.com Nine miles. Hallelujah. Thank you, Joe. I'm so glad you're around. Nine miles to the depth of the sea. They don't, nobody ever approaches that. And God said, that's how far I put it away. It's gone. It's gone. And there are plenty of Christians who love to remind you of it. 
There are plenty of Christians that would love to say, oh, wait a minute, are you sure you want to delete that file? Let me tell you something right now. If you define your life by your greatest failure, you're no longer defining your life by in Christ. Let me just say this to you. And I'm going to go here quick, but let me just say this to you. We could examine it. We could read through both of these books. This is significant. Listen. That's not like a mariachi dance or something, did it? Listen. Here's the deal. This is significant. Listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to this. Don't you think the top tier sin? Don't you think, well, the biggies, like with, I mean, like a, like a, like a major sin would be for the Savior Himself to look at you and say, Simon, let me tell you something. By not, by the time this day's over with, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to curse the fact that you ever knew me. Not so, Lord, not me. The rest of these weaklings might run, but not me. Guess what's happened? He denies him using curse words three times. And the Savior looks over him after the rooster crows in eyes that I don't think were condemning at all. I think his eyes were compassionate. Like, son, I'm going to restore you. And he says, I, I prayed for you that your faith fail not. Did Peter fail? Absolutely. Did his faith fail? Absolutely not. And let me tell you something right now. If Peter would have written first and second Peter, he would have mentioned it. Go read First and Second Peter, and guess what you will not find? You can learn a lot about the Bible from what's not there. And when you go read First and Second Peter, there is not one mention of his greatest failure. You know why? Because he deleted the email. He's not looking in the rearview mirror anymore. It's been cast into the deep blue sea. He's a brand new man, and if you're in Christ, so are you. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? Go look at the Hall of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Go look. Are you looking for a stellar crowd? A bunch of spiritual giants? Are you looking for some men who have faults and frailties like you and I? Noah's in there. In the aftermath of the flood, when the waters receded, what did he do? He got in a drunken stupor, was in shame and nakedness in front of his son. But his sons, and they had to hide and cover his nakedness. Noah's in there. Moses is in there. What did Moses do? Took matters into his own hands and killed an Egyptian in order to help God out as if God needed help. Struck the rock in a fit of rage because of having to put up with the goober-headedness of the people who were following him. Messed up the type of the rock of Jesus because that's like striking the cross again. It's like hitting the cross again and trying to add to what's already been done. And we think, God, that was a stiff penalty. He didn't go to the promised land because He did that. And He said, no, He messed up the type. That rock is my son. I struck it one time. You have no permission to strike it again. He didn't get to see the promised land. He got impatient with those children. Noah's, Moses is in there. Abraham's in there. Big shot Abraham lied twice to save his skin and succumbed to the wooing of Sarah to try to help God out again and have a child through his nursemaid Hagar and birthed Ishmael. And he's not in that, he's in the hall of faith. David is in the hall of faith. Do we need to say more? Adultery, murder. You know what that communicates to us? If it's taken to the mercy seat, it doesn't make it to the judgment seat. Praise God. Hallelujah. Not one mention is made of their greatest failures. And it wasn't because they didn't have any. It's because their rearview mirror was intact. And they trusted the God who took it upon Himself and took every 
every bit of their sin and measure out the full measure of His wrath on His Son. Can I say this to you? This is not the power of positive thinking. This is the power of biblical thinking. To not release, to switch spots with the front glass of your car and the rear view mirror and to invert them means you're saying that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not enough. Think it through. You know the truth. Apply the truth that you know. Here's the truth. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was enough. Amen. The Bible says in Luke 9.62. Luke chapter 9 verse 62. Let's go over there. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. I remember when I was a kid, back in the 1800s, my grandmother had a uh, pretty good size uh, backyard. A real good, by Atlanta standards, it was Wyoming. And uh, so, and we had this yard, and every year in the spring, we would, we'd plant a garden. I'm talking about a significant garden. It was big, and my grandmother knew how to do it. Well, she was raised on a farm. She could tell you everything, you know, and all that. We had this plow. I don't know if you've ever seen them or not. Chad's got a tractor, wimp. And uh, that was a joke. Uh, and we had this plow, and, it, and you pushed along behind it. And it just had one, you, had, you changed out what was down there, whatever you call it. What do you call it? The plow. You call it the plow. Thank you, Scott. God bless you. The plow was down there, but you, 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 you dig it in. And you push along behind it like this. And you, and you do the rows. And for some reason, I don't know why I did this. I never do it now. I volunteered to do that. And so here we are. And we're in South Georgia. It's 800 degrees in the shade. And I'm over here doing this in the sun. You know, plowing this thing. And I remember that you had to start that thing just right. I mean, you go down. I start on the left-hand side. I'm left-handed. Uh, all godly people are. And so we start on the left-hand side, and we go down the road right there on the left-hand side, and we try to get that thing. And I prided myself in the fact that of all the grandsons and all the children and everybody, I, I could plow the straightest row. I I'm sorry. It's just true. Okay. But I thought of that when I was reading this. Look at this. Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And I thought... When I was rowing and I was doing that, I was plowing that row, you had to make sure you got the first one right. That one had to be right. Because every one of them, were, the, 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 the shape of that first row was going to determine the shape of all the rest of them. And so you get that first one right. And then, by the time you got that point of reference, then you come in there with the other one. And you skip a little pathway area and you come in there with the other one. You dig that thing in and you dig that thing in and you keep plowing on down. And not once could I remember looking back to see if it was straight or not. If you look back, you cannot cut a straight row. Let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. Either Jesus is in control of your life or your past is, but not both. Not both. If your past controls you, Jesus doesn't. If Jesus controls you, your past doesn't. Can I say this? And we need a real careful examination. And we've got an opportunity here. Pastor Dave's going to come up in a minute. And we're going to have an examination. Can I say this? Let's just say this right quick like, okay? 
Let me say this right quick. Your past could be controlling you and you not know it this morning. And that could cause all kind of nasty things. And I tell you, one of the primary ones it'll cause, especially if you've got a heart that's bent toward God and you're trying to follow Him, you know what one of the main fruits of that is? It's not good fruit. You'll live your Christian life out of fear. You will. You'll live your marriage out of fear. You'll parent your children out of fear. You'll handle your job out of fear. You'll handle every relationship out of your life out of fear. Because you're ruled by your past. It controls you. It's like a drug. And there's a seduction to it. Testimonies are served the best. And testimonies are the most effective when they give the least airtime to the devil. And all, most of the airtime to Jesus and what he did to overcome my sorry past. Let's don't give him too much airtime. See, just look up there for a minute. Give you that perspective and say, oh God. I can't, I don't, just look for a second, get some perspective, and just start looking straight now. And say, oh Lord, look what you've done. It's, a, it's, a, it's an impetus for praise. It's an impetus for celebration. It's, a, it's the core of who we are. Look what God has done. Look what I've done? No. Look what God's done? Absolutely. Now there's a time of reflection here. Dave, Pastor Dave, let's go ahead and get that started. The Bible says before you take the Lord's Supper, there's things you need to know. And let's be specific about this. We did a whole message about this last time we had the Lord's Supper. This is a time of praise and adoration. The Bible says, remember his death until he comes. It's also a time of examination. Word of instruction here. According to the Word of God, not according to this church. This meal is for those who've repented toward God and put their faith in Jesus. If you've not yet repented toward God and put your faith in Christ, you're not born again. We don't want you to leave. We want you to watch what's happening. And maybe by the... At the end of the service, you might put your faith and trust in Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about that. But for right now, don't participate in the meal if you're not saved, you're not born again. If you don't know, if you don't know what it means to be born again, that means you're probably not. And then, therefore, we can talk to you. Come up to Pastor Dave and myself, uh, and we'll, I, I, we would love to talk with you. Spend the day talking to you about it. Watch, listen, be, stay here, but just don't participate. And that's not because we don't love you. It's just because that's what the meal's for, okay? Then, as a believer... You have a relationship with Jesus. It's eternal. The Bible says in Psalm 37 that he preserves his saints forever. And forever. You know what the translation of forever is there? Forever. And so therefore, I mean, he, he preserves his saints forever. You're saved. You're done. You're had. You're his own. Hallelujah for that. But there's relationship, then there's fellowship. Unrepentant sin in the life of a believer hinders the fellowship. It doesn't erase the relationship it messes up the fellowship. If he's, he's called upon you to repent of something you're holding on to in your life, if you've got bitterness towards somebody else, if you're walking in known disobedience, and maybe nobody in this room but you and God know, or maybe he's going to reveal something to you in the next few minutes, you need to repent. And if you refuse to repent, don't take the cup. God's given you an opportunity to judge the sin before he does. Don't take it. Get it right. Repent. And then take it. And you might be able to do that where you're at. It might mean calling and making something right with somebody. So you need to let it go until you do. It's serious business. All right? And it's also a time of self-reflection to say, Lord, am I a rear-view mirror Christian? 
do I serve you out of fear? Are there things that... I'm, talking, I'm not talking about fearing God. I'm talking about fearing because I'm trying to make up for the past or I'm trying to excel in my Christian service because I made such a mess of it early on. It could be any number of things, but God, am, am I motivated by any kind of fear that's not fear of you? Ask Him that. Let Him tell you. If it's there, delete it. <laughs>